0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to On Stage Offstage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 132, August of 2020. As you know, in response to the COVID 19 outbreak that has silenced many or most, if not all, of the theaters worldwide, On Stage Offstage has been and will, for the near future, be presenting plays that were scheduled for performance but have either been postponed or canceled. This month we are featuring a play by James McClendon. The play is called Choices. We'll have a short interview with James following the play reading. All right,
1: so let's get to it. This is Choices by James McClendon. Our setting is the present. A modest living room, think poor graduate student. Prospective client sits at a table across from debt counselor. Prospective client is a little anxious, really needing this to work. Debt counselor has been waiting for a prospective client to finish reading a pamphlet. Prospective client now looks up, perplexed.
2: I'm sorry. I just don't get it.
3: It's pretty simple. It's just disruptive.
2: No, I know. It sounds simple.
3: Think of it as a choice. We're all about choices. You can make this one or not.
2: No, no. I want to choose this. Believe me, I feel like I'm on a hamster wheel just trying to keep up with the payments. But this just seems too good to be true.
3: Well, that's often what disruption looks like. Remember all the things you used to have to pay to read, like newspapers and magazines? Now you get them online for free. We're disrupting the entire debt consolidation industry. Sort of like that.
2: Okay, but I still don't get it.
3: Tell me what you don't get.
2: So you pay off my student loans.
3: You're crushing student loans.
2: Yes, thank you. My $247,000 in student loans. And all I have to do is pay you $72 a month. Yes. For 20 years. Yes. And that's it. That's all I ever have to pay you.
3: That's all you ever have to pay us.
2: Okay, so... I'm not great at math, but I think that's only like $170,000.
3: Wow, you're right.
2: That it is $170,000?
3: That you're not great at math. Here's my calculator.
1: Debt counselor pushes it across the table to a prospective client who begins to enter some numbers.
3: It comes to $17,280.
2: Only $17,000. Okay, now I don't get this even more.
3: Tell me what you don't get.
2: What don't I? You give me $247,000 to pay off my debt today, and all I have to give you is $17,000 over 20 years?
3: $17,280.
2: So you lose money? Nope. Yeah, you lose money. Nobody sets up a business to lose money unless they're, like, money laundering or something. Wait, are you guys money laundering? No. What are you doing?
3: We're providing choices. I think maybe you skipped footnote 7.
2: I didn't read the footnotes.
3: You should read the footnotes. I never do. You always should.
2: Okay, fine. What does footnote 7 say?
3: It answers this question.
2: About whether you're money laundering?
3: Uh, About how we get paid.
2: So, how do you? I mean, after I finish my payments, you'll be sure... About $230,000.
3: 229720
2: Not to mention all the interest. So where do you get the rest from? There's a bunch of hidden fees, aren't there?
3: There are no fees at all.
2: Then come on. How do you get your money back from me?
3: We don't get it back from you. You don't? We don't. From you.
2: Who do you get it back from?
3: The insurance company.
2: What insurance company?
3: You should really read footnote 7.
2: Just tell me, what insurance company?
3: Your insurance company.
2: Why would my car insurance company pay you?
3: Not your car insurance company.
2: Well, that's the only insurance I have. I sure don't have homeowners because you can't afford to buy a house when you owe 247,000.
3: Your life insurance company.
2: I don't have life insurance.
3: Footnote 7.
2: I have to get life insurance?
3: We pay for it.
2: What good does life insurance do anyone? It depends. Unless I die.
3: Read footnote 7.
2: Oh, my God. You've looked at my DNA. You have. You totally have. That DNA company that said I was 1.7% Mongolian and 2.3% Neanderthal sold you my data, and you looked at it, and you know I have a genetic abnormality, and I'm going to die young. So that's how you... What are you writing down?
3: No, please go on. That's a really interesting business model. Stop it!
2: That's not your business model?
3: No. It's pretty good, though. Way disruptive.
2: So I'm not going to die in the next 20 years?
3: Well, how would I know that?
2: There's no DNA stuff in your file on me?
3: All we have is what you gave us.
2: I'm not going to die young.
3: Well, not in the next 20 years, as far as I know.
2: Do you qualify everything you say?
3: No. Just most of the things you say. Because they need it. Because we're totally honest.
2: How do you make money from my life insurance?
3: How does anyone make money from life insurance?
2: Somebody has to die. But you just said I wouldn't.
3: I said I don't know anything about your DNA or your health at all for that matter. We don't worry about that, please. Read footnote seven, please.
1: Okay, fine. Prospective client returns to reading the pamphlet. Then prospective client looks up at debt counselor, stunned.
2: Oh my
3: God. I know, right? The first time I read it, I was like, what? But the more you think about it, the more genius it is. This effing ruption. Am I right? Sorry, I, I, I just love this product so much.
2: I'm not going to agree to this. Does anyone ever agree to this?
3: No, not at first. But then you think about it, and you think, well... When I took out my crushing student loans, I knew that they would impact my life, severely impact my life, for a whole lot of my life, decades and decades. And see, that's all this is, really. You just assume that the impact would be front-loaded, and all we do is back-load it for you.
2: Me dying at 50 in 20 years, that's what you call severely impacting my life?
3: Well, it seems severe to me.
2: No, it's very severe. It's more than severe. It's ending it.
3: Yes, but what a much better life it will have been, these next 20 years anyway, which, after all, is your prime.
2: How do you, you know, do it? Do what? Make it so you get to, you know, collect.
3: Trigger the life insurance policy. Before we get into the details, I think it's best that you get comfortable with the concept. Well, it's up to you. See? Choices. Most people opt to handle matters themselves. We'll give you some recommendations and how-tos in the next brochure. It's under self-termination. A lot of people will find that they're too squeamish for self-term service. You know how you can schedule a caesarean these days? Well, this is sort of
2: The exact opposite?
3: Yes! The AppServe team is excellent, guaranteed painless, and they can make anything look like an accident. And finally, there are some people who are squeamish, but also find that having an actual appointment makes them... (laughs)
2: Freaking terrified?
3: Anxious. For them, we offer a third approach, a service where you just go about your business and we... Take it from there. That's one called dealer's choice. You don't have to decide now.
2: A lot of people much just run when their time is up.
3: Oh, people are surprisingly ethical about it. Also, we implant a chip that sends us your GPS coordinates.
2: What if you dig the chip out?
3: We don't put it anywhere too accessible. And if you did get it out, we always have the recovery team.
2: The chips are that valuable?
3: You're that valuable. You know, the Coast Guard has rescue and recovery units. This is more recovery and not rescue. You can always say no. We're all about choices.
2: choices. right. Thank you.
3: Quantity or quality. You can live in your rundown studio apartment if you want with a roommate and drive a 15-year-old beater and eat ramen noodles and never take a decent vacation And waste a lot of your life living on the shoulders of poverty.
2: Or I can have only 20 years left.
3: 20 debt-free years to keep and spend your money. To travel. Buy a house. Have a life. Whatever that means to you. And do you really want to live longer than that? With the rising tides of climate change lapping at your ankles and blowing down your little garret? With the last threads of our democracy fraying before your eyes while the old world order collapses? I don't think it's too much to say that one who chooses to go with us are in many ways the lucky ones. Hey, it's a big decision. So take your time. Talk to your family, your friends. And if you do choose to go with us,
2: just give me a call. Wait, are, are you a client?
1: Debt counselor turns around. He smiles and pulls up his shirt. He points to his back.
3: See that? That's my GPS car. Have a look around on the beach this summer. You'll be surprised. Here's my card. When you're ready, call me.
2: Yep, I don't think so.
3: How about I just leave it here then? On the counter. Okay?
2: Okay.
1: Okay. Lights down slowly, curtain.
0: And that was Choices by James McClendon. Cast members were Sarah Bonowitz as the prospective client, Rick Williams as the debt counselor, and Morris Stevens was reading the stage directions. James was kind enough to give us a few moments of his time to talk about the play, which, as we said before, had been accepted for production and, like so many other plays in this crisis, subsequently postponed. Well,
4: this play was uh, actually had four productions set up uh, when the pandemic hit, and. Uh, the, the, it was uh, scheduled for the Boston Theater Marathon, Theater One Productions, which is also in Massachusetts, uh, Winding Road Theater in Tucson, and uh, Silverthorne Theater um, in Western Massachusetts. And, you know, within the space of, as has happened to everyone, within the space of literally about a week, they all got canceled. Um, and um, And that's about the time I submitted this to you guys and what was funny uh what happened next was over the next uh several weeks one by one they announced they were going to try to do something each of these theaters and uh something involving zoom typically um and and uh, so uh it they've um they've had a, a sort of life in those kinds of productions i'm not sure each one of these has done it some of them remain postponed uh they may happen this summer some of them are trying to actually have them live when when circumstances permit uh, so you know i'm not entirely sure they're all going to happen uh but um it it for me in a microcosm that was you know theater kind of getting knocked off its feet and staggering back up uh like rocky at the end of the first movie um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's theaters always dying. Theaters always
0: uh, on the ground. Um, oh, and yeah, that that's been going on since Euripides.
4: Yeah, so I shouldn't be surprised. And yet, it was pretty breathtaking the way uh, you know that started to happen with the, some of the theaters that the play had been scheduled for, and also you know with your initiative and others like it, where it just suddenly. Uh, this void that we thought was going to be there for months was starting to get filled by something that was different but still i think a form of theater
0: yeah i, I mean theater changes and we're we're used to the you know the proscenium the needle thrust with people wrestling for uh, you know armrests and trying not to make their candy or, you know opening distract from the play but now everything's closed so theater is trying to find different ways to survive um, and again we have it on the radio we have uh, podcasts and play readings and that sort of thing mm-hmm. but the tech is coming in to try and bail us out uh, a lot of that is zoom have you have you been working with that at all yet
4: I have such Zoom fatigue, uh, George. You can't believe it. Um, <laughs> I've been doing a lot. It's it's funny. My wife is working from home, and she her work consists of meetings, like all day long. She is on Zoom, all yeah. the time. I'm not on that much, but you know, And it it brings up a couple of I think the silver linings to all of this, which is I have had other plays that um, were. Uh, canceled. Um, and then, you know, for example, the Boston Theatre Marathon did a Zoom edition, and they did a play every day f- uh, for fifty days. And they attracted more people, I think, at those because there was no limit to uh, people being able to to make it to the theater. There was no limit to the number of seats, and so in, if, instead of being limited to a theater of a couple of hundred, as I think they usually are, they'd have more people than that sometimes. That was remarkable to me. Well, the second yeah. thing that was remarkable was that I spent more time in the rehearsals. I've had plays in the Boston Theater Marathon before, but I live about two hours from Boston, or 90 minutes uh, on a good day. And I, I typically, for a 10-minute play, I can't go back and forth to rehearsals. Maybe I go to one. With Zoom, you can go to every rehearsal if you want. Sure, yeah. It's, you know, when it's useful and when it's not useful for the playwright to be in the room. Uh, but you're not hindered by, you know, geography anymore. And, and so in some ways, I was more involved in productions, ironically, uh, because of the pandemic than, uh, than before.
0: Yeah it seems strange that all the theaters are shut down yet we have more capability for attendance mm-hmm. and participation. You know it's it brings to mind the whole 99 seat rule, you know, between the lord theaters and the differences between classifying theaters according to the number of seats. Yeah. So I wonder how the powers that be are going to have to deal with that sort of a thing now. Is it I posit that this whole Zoom thing is comparable to what software has done to take a lot of the intricacies and creation of things like music and books out of the hands of the publishers of the, of the very few and deliver it right smack into the hands of those who are actually doing the creating.
4: Uh, I think that's right. And, um, y- you know, I-, I got a grant from uh, Egg Tooth Productions to, to do a Zoom play. And, you know, we, just put it together ourselves with, you know, everybody had a laptop or a phone and uh, there was no facility that we needed. Um, and uh, though a grant came from a production company, it, you know, it just made me see that it, it's not that difficult to put these things together. And so I've been more inclined to try some self-productions, which I usually shy away from just because of the time involved. Yeah. Uh, but it's really just calling up a few friends and, you know, having rehearsals on Zoom. And uh, it, uh, the, the barriers to uh, starting up, you're right, are much, much smaller now in a Zoom
0: conference. Yes. Yeah. No, 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 no. Everybody can do it. I mean, it used to be that people would get 150 200 bucks to do a resume because they had actually the tools to do it and the intricate tools to do it. Now everybody can do it. Yeah. The same thing with photography. The same thing with music. Now that Pro Tools is out there and Band, all of a sudden you don't need the big companies anymore. Mm-hmm. So, but again, with Zoom, uh, yes, it's much easier to do it. But how do you feel about, I guess, what people are now calling Brady boxing, references to the beginning of the Brady Bunch or Hollywood squaring? Uh, Do we have to write plays (laughs) specifically for that? How how does that affect your work?
4: I'm trying to not very often let it affect my work because, you know, I, I still believe this pandemic. Will not last forever, and um, we will go back to uh, theater on a stage with an audience. Um, and And I love that. and I love the intimacy of it. so i'm I'm reluctant to devote a lot of energy and a lot of my output to things that will probably have a very limited shelf life, I hope. Um, what I've tried to do more is work with, you know, the existing forms, uh, and try to tailor them as best we could for, uh, you know, this pandemic. Some things I think lend themselves to it better than others. Choices, I think, uh, can work very well as a Zoom production, um, ensemble pieces and things like that, um. are obviously more difficult things that require a lot of physicality don't work very well. Um, so it's, uh, it, you know, there, there are certainly limitations on it, but, uh, but, but I think a lot of things can be made to work. Um, and, you know, I think like all playwrights and everybody in theater, I am, you know, waiting for the time when we can get back in the theater, when we can um, have a, a physical gesture between two actors again, that, speaks volumes and, and yeah. doesn't require dialogue and, and you can do that
0: to a very limited extent in Zoom but only a limited extent. Sure well, the, the whole the whole medium has changed and therefore a lot of what people are writing is going to have to try and adapt to that. Uh, so it's yeah. going to be interesting to see what comes out in the next couple of next year or so. Hopefully as you say, the pandemic will be a thing of the past, not soon enough, but I believe it will. Um, and we'll see where we are but let's talk about the play because as I mentioned before when all the submissions came in and I got my eyes on choices and I read it all the way through I thought this is an instant winner we have to do this um, it's devilish it it's <laughs> it's sublime it's devilish and where did this come from please tell me you don't do this for a living
4: <laughs> I don't um, you know the um... The the premise of the play is uh, a, a, there are two um, characters, and one is a student with crushing student le- debts, and the other is a someone from a debt consolidation company who is uh, has a new product that is um, challenging to say the least. Uh, it you know it, <laughs> about it. I've, I've been reading a lot about um, you know the, the kind of, of debt burden that kids today are coming out of college with, and I have a son who is, uh, college age. So it's something that's a bit front of mind for me, but more broadly, I think the debt we're leaving the rising generation, uh, in terms of our climate, our politics, uh, our, our racial politics, um, our economy, uh, the, na- the national debt and the like, uh, is staggering and uh, needs to be addressed and and i don't think we were addressing it before the pandemic hit and we're certainly not addressing it now uh, but these things are are you know potential time bombs for the future and many of us may not be here when they explode if nothing changes but uh, all the more reason to start now to defuse them
0: yeah well, we should, things we should have been working on for several years now, several decades probably, and as you say, time bombs. We've got quite a few of them going off now.
4: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so that's where the idea came from. Um right. the, the next question, of course, is if you want to de- uh, you know, student loans is kind of a, a dry topic. Uh, if uh, so, you need an angle on it and satire is usually a good one for that kind of thing and and so the uh, the the uh, debt consolidation uh, salesman uh, offers the debtor um, a way to take care of the loan uh, which is ghastly and yet I spent some time kind of calibrating the exact terms of the offer to make you at least say hmm um, <laughs> maybe I would do it with a little tweak here, a little tweak there, or at least it's imaginable. And, and I think, you know, good satire requires uh, it to the, the, the outrageous proposition to at least begin to uh, border our reality.
0: Yeah. It's amazing where reality has taken us and the things that we kind of get used to. When, she, you know, when we got to the end of the play and he says, I'm going to leave my card here. And part of me inside said, "No, take your card with you and keep going." Mm-hmm. And then, and then, in our case, she uh, says, "Yeah, okay." I thought, "Wow, it's plausible. It's absolutely one hundred percent plausible." Which is the scary part.
4: It is. It is. And you know, the the idea is to make us focus on you know what exactly we're asking of people like this this debtor. Uh, And, you know, if if, if this plan, which I'm not going to spoil, is thinkable, then, you know, we really need to start doing something.
0: Yeah, well, student debt's been a crushing issue for a very long time. And I was one of the lucky few who was actually able to pay for a lot of his master's degree. Um, But I know other people who are so saddled, especially people who go to law school, uh, are saddled with with debt that is, is unbelievable. the The absolute amounts are, are just absolutely staggering. What they have to pay off for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. So I looked you up and found you on NPX, um, and you've got quite the the history of writing and successes. How how long have you been? crafting stage plays?
4: You know, I started uh, I started writing um, sketch comedy in my last year of college with a friend of mine who'd just come back from a year abroad. And we were actually, both of us, uh, coincidentally enough, were going to go into doctoral programs uh, for history. And, you know, we were going to become academics. And we were both having so much fun, we decided to put it off. And we did. And we wrote a couple of plays in Chicago. Um, and uh, one of, the first one did very well uh, and was nominated for a, a Joseph Jefferson citation. Uh, and the second one we'd like to say was misunderstood by the critics. Uh, <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> I had decided to actually go to law school myself. And uh, I did that. And I got away from writing for quite a while. But um uh, I came back to it um, and have been writing for about uh, 15 years now, uh, all told. So, yeah, it's, I never really stopped writing, but um, I stopped writing for the theater for a while.
0: Yeah. Well, um, law school takes an awful lot of writing anyway. I'm surprised you'd have time for anything else.
4: It does, and my briefs are not nearly as funny as my plays. Uh, uh well, that's too bad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously, the courtrooms could use a few chuckles. so yeah i was looking you've got residencies at all pretty much all the major places o'neill lark playpen seven devils telluride ashland great plays uh, great plains that's something so you what were these experiences like i mean how did they affect your your playwriting
4: they were, by and large, just tremendous. I mean, you meet a lot of people and you make a lot of connections, which is very important. Um, you also, early in my career, you know, I had a chance at the O'Neill to, to work with just tremendous actors and a tremendous director um, that um, really helped me see or reinforced with me that, you know, the stuff I was writing – could be brought to a level by the right people that uh, was, uh, you know, beyond what I expected. And and that was uh, very encouraging and just exhilarating uh, to see what they could do with it. Um, I, I have been lucky enough to go to a number of these and uh, you also meet other playwrights and you get a sense of, you know, how people write their plays and how it's different from yours and, and, how it's the same, and you get ideas about your own writing from them, both in terms of style and in terms of process, and uh, that's immensely helpful. Being a playwright uh, is uh, can be very isolating, and um, playwrights tend to be solitary people <laughs> to some degree. Anyway, yep. those kinds of uh, not enforced but invited um, collegiality with other uh, playwrights that I always found incredibly useful.
0: It's For me, it's the collaboration. As you say, yes, writing is a lonely process, and I am completely isolated when I do it. Um, and I never tell anybody about what I'm writing until I've got like a second, third draft done. Uh, but everything after that, for me, is collaborative. And I was a, a participant at the last Frontier Theater Conference for oh, four or five times a number of years ago. That's an experience I would wish on every uh, playwright. It's it's a wonderful thing to have happen, to have capable people looking at your work, offering real thoughtful criticism, constructive criticism. It's always constructive. And helping your play grow. I mean, I learned so much from that experience and from going to uh, Goddard College, getting my MFA there, by working with other artists and... The thrill of being around like-minded creative people is it's hard to describe to somebody who's who's never been there who's never experienced that sort of thing
4: yeah it's true. Mm-hmm. I have friends who write novels and you know the, the, one of them in particular kind of blanches of the notion that somebody else gets to <laughs> interpret your work and oh um, yeah and the like and you know and that's really what I Tellers, that that's that's the uh, the great part of it is seeing somebody take what you've done and just add dimension to it that you mm-hmm. didn't even imagine, and, and it's uh, it, it's it's
0: thrilling when that happens. It is. It's it, I had no idea that, that there was any kind of collaboration due until a number of years ago, probably twenty years ago, when I was fortunate enough to win the Panosky Award. And they brought me up to quote, workshop the play, which I'd never heard of before. And they had something called a dramaturg there. <laughs> and all of a sudden, everybody was talking about my play, which had won the contest. And I thought, well, if my play has won the contest, why do these people want to change it? <laughs> and yeah, after about a week, I found that they weren't there to change it, they were there to help me look at it from different perspectives. And a lot of what they had to say was so absolutely valuable that I grew as a playwright, you know, like the Grinch's heart grew at the end of that thing, you know, six times its own size. Um, By the end of that week, I was I realized there's so much about this profession that I have to learn, Um, which ended up, you know, I ended up writing a book about this, about the process and about workshopping plays um, because I believe in it so much. So when I look at all these residencies that you've been to, I'm thinking this is this is absolutely incredible to have that kind of support, and to have that quality, that caliber of people working with you on your own creativity. That's an unbelievable gift.
4: It really is. It really is.
0: So how you been keeping busy theatrically while COVID ravages the the, the, the land? You know,
4: early on, I felt it um, early on, a lot of people were saying, well, you know, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during a pandemic. And um, that's that's a lot of pressure to put on anyone Uh, (laughs) to live up to that. And uh, and I don't think it was realistic. And I think a second wave started saying, you know what, Uh, this maybe isn't the time for you to write your King Lear. I I felt early on, I I found it hard to write because I just I need a quiet head to write. and, And there was nothing about what was going on that was conducive to that. It's not like things have gotten any calmer, uh, but I feel like I've gotten better at um, finding the quiet in my head when I when I need to write, uh, and so I have gotten more productive. I think in the last uh, few weeks than I had been initially. I had been you know concentrating more on these uh, Zoom opportunities, such as they were, uh, that started. Blossoming, but now I feel like I'm ready to get back and and write some more new stuff uh, for what comes next uh, after after COVID.
0: Yeah, I think COVID has sent us all for a loop. I mean, with the theaters closing and our normal outlets of creative expression have all been canceled and replaced with Zoom, which is a wonderful thing, but it's not quite what we're used to and it's not quite what we want. Um, it's going to change the profession and I think it's going to change or at least cause us as creatives, you know, playwrights, directors to rethink how we see the craft and I hope enable us to discover more things that when quote normalcy, whatever that may be, returns and the theaters reopen again, um, we have that much more to offer. I think as playwrights, we're going to have a ton more stories in the first place. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I think so as well. And um, it's funny, I've been seeing calls for scripts now that that specify two different things. One of them, the more common one still is scripts that uh, are asking you to address the pandemic and often are asking you to uh, write specifically for a Zoom platform, you know, not just, a play that's been, is being staged on Zoom, but rather a play that uses Zoom as part of its uh, um, uh, context. Um, you see that happening, but more more I'm seeing theater say, you know, we want scripts about other things because the world's going to come back and there are other issues and, and yeah, the theater needs to address those too. Uh,
0: well, I think theater always will. You know, yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think COVID's going to stop us from addressing everyday things. You know, the the, the big and the small. Yeah. yeah.
4: Uh, no, I agree. Um, the other thing that gives me hope is, I wrote a play about three years ago about Ethan Allen and a doctor who would go on to f- uh, be involved in the Tea Party in Boston a few years later. Um, and it, it, the incident was, uh, it took place in front of a meeting house in 1765 in Connecticut. And it, at the time, there was a great controversy about the smallpox vaccination, and many clergy, uh, Puritan clergymen were against it because um, basically the argument that you hear today that, you know, God, god if it's your time, if God wants you, um, you know, it's defying his will to... Right smallpox vaccination, it was very anti-science and the like, and Ethan Allen, who was a bit of a wild man, uh, and the doctor were publicly staging Ethan Allen's inoculation uh, to prompt a court case that uh, they could then use to, you know, uh, trumpet the issue, kind of like the Scopes mon- Monkey Trial of uh, two mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, yeah. And that play is so esoteric uh, that, you know, I I wrote it because I wanted to write it. It's it's a 10-minute play, and I never thought there'd be a time where anyone would care about it. And I haven't <laughs> placed it anywhere yet, George, but I have hope now that somewhere you may take this really obscure play and do something with it. That would make me oh, do.
0: I think it. I think it's timely enough to find a place. It sounds perfectly topical at this point. Yeah, so... How's COVID in your area? How are people reacting to it?
4: You know, after a really bad start, um, I think we've kind of reached a normalcy in here. I live in western Massachusetts, and uh, everyone here wears masks, or almost everyone. Uh, our rates are dropping. We're one of a handful of states in the country that can still say that um, good In uh, at this time. Uh, I hope it lasts Uh I, You know, they're slowly starting to reopen the state. And I just know for myself and my family and a lot of our friends, we're not quite there yet to certainly go inside a restaurant and eat. It doesn't feel safe. Maybe a well-spaced restaurant outside, maybe that uh, would feel right. But I think it's going to be a while before anyone... I know around here is is going to be living anything approaching their previous life. Uh,
0: I think it's going to be a long time, at least another year before things get back to or approach whatever we were pre-pandemic used to. Uh, although, yeah, yeah it's going to be one of those things before pandemic, after pandemic, because I see society changing greatly. Um, for those of us that are being careful that are wearing the masks, it's gonna, it's gonna take quite a thing for me to actually get back into a crowd now.
4: It's gonna take vaccines, I think, for a lot of people, and, and i oh, really yeah. among those. Uh, but I can't imagine going to Fenway Park right now, you know, with a full crowd, or uh, let alone a restaurant or
0: sure. other things. Yeah. Oh yeah, Ab- absolutely. So. Where can we find more about you?
4: Uh, well, two places uh, are pretty easy. My website is uh, james mclinden. That's J-A-M-E-S-M-C-L-I-N-D-O-N.com. com. Um, it has um, you know the, the latest events and upcoming productions and things like that. But probably the better places if you want to read some of my scripts would be to go to the New Play Exchange and uh, search for for my name, James McLinden my publishers, Dramatic Publishing, and uh, Smith & Krauss, for the most part, and applause books.
0: Well, thank you so much, James, for uh, stopping by to talk about your work and things all theater in general. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thanks, George. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet, or know of someone in the theater who would make really good chat, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. OnStage OffStage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. On stage, Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening, and please, kids, stay safe. Be careful for yourself and for those with whom we share this rock. And as always... Happy theatering to all of you.